Our scripture reading this morning is a little bit of a lengthy one, uh, but we are going to read from Genesis chapter 17, and I think we are going to be reading uh, the entire chapter. So uh, you can follow along uh, on the screens or in your bulletin, um, and then uh, so listen to the voice of the Lord. When Abraham, or Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he'd finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, and bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house, 
and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your scriptures, even for sections that uh, seem a little different than others. Um, But I pray, Father, that uh, you would use even passages like this to open to our hearts to your your truth, um, to the way uh, you view reality, the things around us, that you would open our eyes to the true nature of the gospel and its work in time and in space and in history. So be with us now. We need your spirit to speak to our hearts. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If you uh, have been around here long enough, you know that one of uh, my favorite authors is uh, a man named David Brooks who writes uh, for the New York Times. And uh, he writes, uh, I think it's an opinion piece uh, every um, week or so. And often it's based on politics, but but sometimes he writes on culture too. And uh, this past summer he wrote uh, an article in the New York Times called The Golden Age of Bailing. Uh, if you get a chance, look it up. It's, it's worth the read. But it talks about how we as a culture have gotten really good at, at bailing on things. And he writes this. He says, it's clear we're living in a golden age of bailing. All across America, people are deciding on Monday that it would be really fantastic to go grab a drink with X, Y, or Z on Thursday. But when Thursday actually rolls around, they realize It would be actually more fantastic to go home, flop on the bed, and watch carpool karaoke videos. And so they send the bailing text or email. So sorry, I'm going to have to flake out on drinks tonight. Overwhelmed, my grandmother just got bubonic plague. (laughs) And he writes on and on about this. And and one of the funny things that he highlights, and one of the very true things uh, that he highlights as well, is that we live in a culture of overcommitment, a culture of incredible developments in technology, but we're often still very much people pleasers. So it makes this idea of bailing all too common and often all too easy in our culture today. But what all of it has done is it has eroded the virtue of reliability in our culture. Now, I thought about this week as I looked at our story because in our story today, Abraham is really wondering whether God is reliable. He's wondering, can God be trusted to come through on all of the promises that he makes? If you've been with us, you know we've been looking at the life of Abraham and what his story tells us about the nature of faith If you go all the way back to Genesis 12, you'll remember that Abraham was approached by God. God invaded his life, and he came making promises to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a promised land, a land that's flowing with milk and honey. He says, I'm going to leave my hand of blessing on you for all of your life. And then the last promise was that I'm going to give you an heir. I'm going to give you a son who is going to carry on your name. But as we've read the Abraham story, we realize that as these chapters of Genesis roll on and on, those promises of God continue to be delayed in Abraham's life. And Abraham continually, and maybe understandably, begins to doubt whether God is really reliable. 
So in Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham once again, and he comes making a covenant with Abraham. And we saw that a covenant is a binding agreement from God promising that he will fulfill his promises. What God does is he uses a very common cultural practice in Abraham's day to bind himself in Abraham's mind to the promises that he is willing to make. But as the chapters roll on, God still delays in fulfilling his promises. So in Genesis uh, chapter 16, Abraham takes matters into his own hands and Ishmael is born. He is a son to Abraham, not from his wife Sarah, but a son from his, his, her handmaiden, Hagar. So by the time Genesis 17 rolls around, our passage this morning, Abraham is probably around 99 years old, almost 100 years old. And you can imagine that he is all but given up on the promises of God being realized in his life. There's a great line in Anne of Green Gables where, where Anne is, is speaking to Marilla, and she says this in her dramatic tone, if you've ever read the story. She says this. She says, my life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes. And one has to think that is exactly what Abraham is thinking at this moment. He had buried the hopes of having a son with Sarah, and with them he had buried the promises of God in the graveyard of his life. But what is remarkable in our passage is that God yet again comes to Abraham. God, in his initiative, once again comes to Abraham and he resurrects the covenant in Abraham's life, and in the process, he resurrects hope for Abraham. There's three things I'd like us to look at about this resurrected covenant really quickly. And the first is is the covenant's transformation, the transformation that the covenant brings in Abraham's life. You see it uh, in verse 5 and in verse 15. So as Abraham is being uh, resurrected, as his hopes are being resurrected, God gives Abraham a new name. He and his wife get a new name in the process. And and, and if you've looked at history at all, you'll know that names really meant something in ancient cultures. At least they mean a lot more than, than they do in our culture. In fact, when I, was, uh, when I was researching this this week, I thought for a second, my wife and I did a shockingly, shockingly little amount of research when it came to naming our own kids. Uh, and we didn't really think about what their names meant. So this week I thought it'd be interesting, let me look up what the names of our kids meant. And, and, and some of the names we really hit on, uh, one of our, our kids' names means strong-willed warrior, which I thought was a great, a great name. Uh, but other names we didn't really hit on. One of our kids' names uh, means bent nose. And uh, I, I don't know what that means for, for his future, but that, that's what his name means. But in reality, it, it doesn't really affect their future. It doesn't really affect their identity in a lot of ways. But the ancient world was very different because names really meant something in the ancient world. They were actually believed to not only affect a person's identity, who they were, but it also would affect their trajectory or the path of their lives. And so in our passage, God comes to Abram 
and he gives him a new name. Abram's name meant high father, but then God comes and renames him Abraham, which meant high father of multitudes. And he comes to Sarah and really just changes the variation of her name, changes the spelling of her name to solidify the actual meaning of her name, which is the name Princess. God doing this was incredibly symbolic, and everyone in the moment understood it because the promises of God had come and transformed Abraham and Sarah's life, and because of that, it affected everything, including their names. The promises of God were now to shape their identity. They were to shape their lives now and shape them in the future. And because names meant something, being named meant something as well. In the ancient world, uh, often names would be uh, the responsibility of the fathers, the person who had the ultimate authority in a family. So it was really important business for a father to name particularly a son because it meant so much to the future of their family and the identity of that son. But in our story, God is the one who names. God, the ultimate authority, steps in to Abraham and Sarah's life. In his authority, he transforms their lives and he reshapes their trajectory. Their identity was now to be based solely on the promises of God in their lives and nothing else. In the ancient church, uh, it's been the practice uh, in the ancient church and through many times, even today in church history, that when someone is baptized into the church, they get a new name. They might call it their baptism name or, or their Christian name or whatever it is. But what it is symbolic of is it becomes a picture that when God enters the life of someone, that life is immediately transformed. God enters in, he reshapes that life, he reshapes that person's identity, and he changes their future. It's a reminder that that our faith isn't just a, a compartment of our life, or it ought not to be a compartment of our life that we just pull off the shelf on Sundays or for some other spiritual practice throughout the week. Instead, true faith transforms everything about our lives. It transforms one's identity. It transforms one's future because the promises of God are to be the bedrock of the life of faith. And so Abraham's name is changed, and that change reflects something else even about the covenant that we see in this passage. It reflected the fact that the covenant not only transforms, but the covenant also expands. Let me read verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." See, what God is doing here is he's taking those original promises of the covenant 
and he's expanding them. He's building upon them, and he's saying that these promises are not just for you, Abraham, but they are for all the generations that come after you. In fact, in verse 6, it says, nations will come from you, Abraham, and kings will come from you as well. In effect, these promises that I, am, that I am promising to you, they will go on for all of eternity. Now, Abraham is understandably a mix of emotions here when God comes to him. He's dumbfounded. You can, you can see that in verses 3 and 17, where, where twice Abraham falls on the ground, prostrate, prostrate before God in all sorts of amazement and wonder. Later, it says in verse 17 that he's incredulous. He, he falls to the ground one of those times laughing at the prospect that a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are going to have a child. And in verse 18, he even seems very rational. He comes before God pleading, saying, God, I already have a son, and his name is Ishmael. He's effectively saying, God, I've already figured all of this out. Can't you regard Ishmael as the child of promise? In fact, he's a miraculous child of my old age as well in his own right. So God, can't I just pour all of my hopes and dreams into this child, Ishmael, who at this point is probably 13 years old? But God comes to him and he says, no. He says, you and Sarah will have a son and I will bless that son for generation after generation throughout all of eternity. Now, the New Testament really helps us make sense of what all this means because the New Testament helps us to see that God's promises were not just for Abraham's physical family, but God's promises are also for Abraham's spiritual family. In fact, what the New Testament tells us is that if you have grasped hold of God in faith, just as Abraham did, then these promises are just as much for you as they were for Abraham. The gospel tells us that in faith, God comes to you making all sorts of promises. He promises to always have, have his hand of blessing on your life. He promises to never leave you and to never forsake you. He promises that he goes before you to prepare a place for you, a home in his very presence, and he promises to carry you on to that home securely. See, if you have placed your faith in Abraham's God, then these promises are just as much for you as they were for Abraham. The last thing we see here is, is the covenant's response. Because by and large, we've seen thus far that the covenant has been one-sided. It's been God coming to Abraham, and Abraham's only responsibility is to trust in God and receive all of the blessings that come from the hand of God. But in this passage, God takes it one step further in that he begins instructing Abraham on how he is to respond to this covenant. He tells Abraham to walk before him and to be blameless. 
But what he also does is he provides a sign of the covenant that Abraham is to institute not just for himself, but for all of his family. And that sign is the practice of circumcision. Now, volumes have been written by theologians for centuries on why God would choose this practice above all others. Now, we can figure out that it was a relatively common practice uh, in the ancient world. It was a a, a coming-of-age ceremony, uh, often for teenage boys. We know that it was a very bloody practice um, and one that could only be practiced by males. But people for, for centuries have really wondered about its specific symbolism. Why this particular practice? And we won't even try to solve that here this morning. But what we can realize is that either way, Abraham was instructed to do this. He was instructed to circumcise himself and those who are around him. And we know that that practice was to be a sign throughout all generations of entrance into this covenant relationship with God. It was a a physical reminder. It was a, a tangible seal of the promises of God, and it, of course, became a common practice for centuries all the way up today. Those who were circumcised were to be considered part of Abraham's family and therefore a part of the covenant, a part of the promises of God. And what's remarkable is that Abraham responds immediately into obedience. He, he launches into action, fulfilling the words of God in his life. Now, it's important to recognize that this response to the covenant was not a precondition to the covenant. You see, the covenant, the promises of God came first. In fact, they came 25 years earlier. And so Abraham's obedience was not a precondition to the covenant. Instead, it was the grateful response of the presence of the covenant of God in his life. And the same, friends, is true for us as well. Our obedience to God, our fulfilling of the will of God in our lives can never be the ground or the cause of the promises of God in our lives. But instead, our obedience is a a gracious response to the promises of God in our lives. They are a response of gratitude for the miracle of grace that has happened in our lives. And so we see here that that God's invasion, God's entrance into Abraham's life changed everything for him. It changed his name, it changed his identity and his future, it changed his behavior. He was now to live a life of obedience in response to God's promises. And at the end of the day, it resurrected hope from the grave in Abraham's life. And friends, in the gospel, the very same thing is true for you and I. Because if you have clung to faith in God in your lives, then know that you have been given a new identity and a new future. 
If you have clung to God in faith, you've been given a new foundation for your life, a new foundation to build your life upon. You no longer are called to live for yourself. Instead, your behavior has now been changed based on the promises of God. Your now and your future are secure in the hands of God. Hope has been resurrected in the graveyard of your life. God promised to Abraham that a king would come from his line. And of course, we know throughout the Old Testament that King David was one of those kings. He was the quintessential king in Israel's history. But ultimately, what the New Testament tells us is that another king would be born from Abraham's line. And the the Gospels tell us that this king was unlike any other king. This king would come not to rule as an authoritarian, but would come to rule as a servant. He would ultimately serve by giving up his life as if he himself was a breaker of that covenant. His flesh would be cut off. His body would be sacrificed for your sin and for mine. You see, Jesus would suffer as a covenant breaker so that you and I, by faith, could stand upon the promises of God in our lives. So, friends, cling to him in faith, just as Abraham did, and see hope resurrected in your life. Let's pray.